0: We cannot escape history." So said Abraham Lincoln in his annual message to Congress in December of 1862. The past to which the President alluded, the past which had shaped the present for him and for his contemporaries, the past which could not be escaped, was the preceding two centuries of bond slavery in the United States. Which now had plunged the country into a civil war, a war so fierce that the President himself wondered whether the nation could survive it. Well, the nation did survive it. But the point President Lincoln was making is still valid when we think about race relations in the United States today. Our present has been shaped by our past. The wicked institution of slavery, first of all, followed by Jim Crow. You remember the old saying, uh, separate but equal in public facilities and education. Then came the Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Board of Education. And then the freedom marches and the race riots. And now, today, we have to contrast the grim visage of Louis Farrakhan, and the smiling face of Tiger Woods. Let me alter for present purposes just one word of Mr. Lincoln's assertion. My fellow Christians, we cannot escape history my name is marvin o'connell and i am professor emeritus of history in the university of notre dame and i welcome this opportunity to talk to you a little bit about the history of the catholic church obviously the subject is so vast that in the short space of time allowed one could scarcely do justice even superficially so What I propose to do is to take two areas that seem to me to be of particular importance. One is the very beginnings of the Christian religion, the first three or four centuries, which framed so much of what we Christian Catholics believe and do. And then secondly, to jump forward a thousand years to deal with the beginnings of what historians call the modern world. That is, the era of the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, which have perhaps more direct relevance, at least so it may seem to us, to our present situation. I'm also, if you don't mind, going to indulge a little in uh, uh, academic pedantry by talking about the the nature of the historical discipline. You'll forgive that, I'm sure. I've made my living doing that for a good part of 40 years. We cannot escape our history. The Christian religion is rooted in specific acts and specific personages who flourished and took place At particular times in particular places. This is our heritage. We cannot escape it any more than our ancestors in the 1860s could escape the terrible testament of bond slavery. Do you remember the feature song from the musical Fiddler on the Roof? Tradition, sang the Jewish father, who was uh, a bit. Uneasy at what seemed to be the tendency among his children to stray from those long-held values that were drawn from the Talmud and the Bible. Tradition, he insisted, was worth more than fine-spun gold, worth more than anything. It was the lifeblood of the Jewish people. It was what made them who they were, what made them what they were what made them the chosen people. Well, we Catholics sing the same song under a new covenant, to be sure, but built upon the old one. And whenever I hear tradition sung in that marvelous gravelly voice of the star of the, uh, of the, of the musical, I cannot help but think of the roots of my religious faith, which go back, not just to the time of Christ, but which go back to that day, that mysterious day, when God chose Abraham, who lived far off in that city with a wonderful name, Ur of the Chaldees. And Abraham was told that there was a land flowing with milk and honey which was to be his and his descendants. And thus began that great adventure, that Judeo-Christian adventure, which you and I participate in today. And in that context, I'm reminded, incidentally, and you may recall it too, the older among you anyway, in 1937, Pope Pius Eleventh, at the height of the Nazi persecution of the Jews, proclaimed for all of us to ponder, in religion, we Christians are all Semites. So what is true of Judaism is also true of Christianity. Our religion is not something that wells up within ourselves, demanding some sort of psychic uh, satisfaction. Our religion is not something that needs to be invented every generation in order to meet the vicissitudes of contemporary life. That is not to say that our religion can be indifferent to the circumstances of particular times and places, But overriding that, or perhaps I should say undergirding that is our dedication, our commitment to tradition. The revelation which God has deigned to give to human beings assumed a form that was intelligible to them and to us by letting it be known to human beings in the form of deeds, words and persons of the past. Now, tradition is not identical with history. There is much in the history of Catholicism and the history of the Church, uh, personalities, (laughs) events, crises, which have passed away and which maintain, you might say, only an academic interest. They don't, in any case, impose any kind of personal commitment on us. But history is the tool whereby we find out what tradition really is. That is to say, what those events, those personages may have been, to whom and to which we do need to make our commitment. And history, can do something else, too, the history of the church. It can provide a rich and varied background against which we can test our own faithfulness or lack of it, uh, the, the measure to which we live up to the ideals that have been passed on to us or the degree to which we have failed. One of the most profound and most difficult challenges to a Catholic believer is that the church is a divine institution but it is organized along human lines and it is of course as you and I know to our sorrow it is composed of very imperfect human beings and so it doesn't seem amiss to take the imperfect tool of history, and I hope to explain in a moment why it is imperfect, to take that imperfect tool in order to deepen our understanding and perhaps even our commitment to the religion which we profess, which uh, leads me to indulge for uh, a little while here, if I may, in, in some academic You've got to remember, I am a professor, and uh, a little dry classroom disquisition is almost inevitable when you deal with a person like me. Let me give you a definition of history, a very simple one. History is the reconstruction of the past by the mind from sources. What you have is a declarative sentence, and three prepositional phrases. And when you have looked at those, you have, I think, an idea of what it is the historian does, what he can accomplish, and what he can't accomplish. Let's look at each of those prepositional phrases. History is a reconstruction of the past. Well, that means what it says what you see is what you get. Every human activity is grist for the historian's mill. That means those who wandered across the face of Asia and Africa 500,000 years ago, their activities are grist for the historian's mill, and so are the Greek scholars of Aristotle and Plato. So are the medieval crusaders. So are those people who made the the latest uh, atomic reactor somewhere in Sweden or Japan or Afghanistan. You see the point I'm making. We have this vast subject matter uh, which confronts anybody who would want to engage in this act of reconstruction. History is the reconstruction by the mind. there are two important things to say about that and the first one is related to to what I just said about the, the grist. The subject is so immense, so vast, so full of complexities that it cannot be grasped by the limited human mind unless it is divided. Now, the thing we always have to understand, it always has to be at the back of our minds, even though it, it may not appear on the pages of the book we write or the article we give, or it may not be expressed explicitly in the words spoken, is that the past is not divided. All the complexities which we try to pick out of the historical events and the personages we divide from this group, from that group, all of those things are done as an intellectual exercise, and they reflect the limits of the human mind, not the complexity of the past human situation. So we have all kinds of divisions, but they they can be broken down basically into two. First is chronological divisions. And from your high school or college days, you're familiar with those, no doubt. We speak, for example, of ancient history, by which we mean the rise of civilized activity in places like China and Egypt and Mesopotamia three or four thousand years before the birth of Christ. We run that vast period down to the fall of the Roman Empire, about 500 years after Christ's time. Then we come up with another great chronological chunk which we call the Middle Ages. And as I'm sure you're aware, that phrase, that term I should say, was a term of some contempt. It was invented in the 18th or 19th century by people who look back with some favor upon the ancient period, but with nothing but contempt for what happened right after the fall of the Roman Empire, and who at the same time were, like most of us, ready to think that their own times were the best of all. So, they said, the Middle Ages are what come between the greatness of the ancient world and the greatness of the present world. Even so, it's a thousand years of history to contend with. And then, finally, comes the so-called modern period, a word, by the way, which my students always chuckled at when I said, we're going to deal with modern history, that is, with Martin Luther and Sir Thomas More and people who have lived four or five hundred years ago, to them, and perhaps to you, and if you keep a secret to me, uh, that is a, something of a misuse of the word modern. Anyway, that's the way the, those big divisions work out. But you know, professors are never satisfied with these kinds of things. They always want to diddle with them in some way or another. So what you, you also have to add to that, you've got these three periods I spoke of, ancient, medieval, modern. And so what about cavemen and cave women? How about those times so remote that we must depend for our knowledge about them on fossils or bits of stone that may have been used as a weapon or a utensil? So we come up with a new chronological division called prehistory. And all that means is that for the greatest part of human life on this planet, men and women could not read and write. And since they were illiterate, they could not leave behind them any kind of written record. And so, those who are even more pedantic than I am want to speak about prehistory. And then at the other side of the spectrum, on the other side of modern, there are those who invent still another category of division, and that is what they call contemporary history. Let's say the the history that has gone on in my lifetime, my lifetime of seven decades now, or let's say since the Second World War. There is something to that, in that history is very difficult to write and to think about if one is so consumed with one's own contemporary culture and civilization that one has a hard time getting outside of it. Those of us who are terribly fussy about these things tend to think about contemporary history as journalism. That's probably unfair, but that's the way it goes. So here you have, then, these basic chronological divisions. And needless to say, they can be subdivided and often are. The principle that I enunciated a moment ago, that is to say, the the vastness of the subject simply overwhelms the human mind that vastness is still the case if you're dealing with say a thousand years of medieval history from the time of the emperor theodosius and the emperor justinian through saint thomas aquinas to dante you're talking about an immense period of time so we have the early middle ages the middle middle ages the late middle ages you can see how it can go on forever and indeed it has to go on forever The second way in which the mind confronts this vast subject and tries to deal with it in in an intelligible way is to divide the material topically. And here again, the possibilities are almost infinite. You can have economic history, you can have social history, you can have, obviously, religious history, In the old days, by the old days I mean when the modern historical discipline was forming, say, in the late 1700s and through the 1800s, the only history that anybody paid any attention to was military and political. Drum and bugle history, some people called it contemptuously. But again, you see the point I'm making. You can divide along these intellectual categories, and indeed you have to. But if you'll pardon my repetition, You always have to bear in mind somewhere that you can divide economic history from social history from political history, but in the way in which human beings lived in those times, all of those factors were working together at the same time. And so, once again, the point is that the divisions are made to satisfy the human person and the human incapacity to deal with this vastness. And then you have a mixture of these divisions. For example, you can have the economic history of ancient Rome, for instance, so that you take this topical division and then you ally that, so to speak, with the chronological. That happens all the time. Another way in which the division is made is along ethnic lines or national lines. When I was growing up, That was the common way, really, to study and to learn history, was to do it by way of separating one nation from another so that you had, of course, the history of the United States. And then you had the history of Great Britain or Russia or China or India. More recently, I suspect, because we do indeed dwell now more and more in a global village, the tendency is not to make these national divisions quite as sharply as we once did, but in any case. You see the point I'm making. You can mix all this together. For example, you can have the economic history of the United States from 1789 when the Constitution was approved to the War of 1812. So That you have a couple of topics put together and then the chronological division as well. I have a feeling I may be beating a dead horse by this constant reiteration. So let me move on to the third prepositional phrase. History is a reconstruction of the past from sources. Now, when you think about history as the reconstruction by the mind, and I want to make a contrast here between number two and number three, if I may. When we speak of reconstruction by the mind, you immediately introduce a subjective character into the reconstruction. And that's terribly important to see history is an art in that sense it is a creation it's something that you do and i do and the only reality that the past has is your reconstruction of it and mine napoleon is gone now history doesn't deal with where he went He may have gone to various supernatural inns about which the historian knows nothing. But when you go to Paris and take the the bus tour around the City of Lights, you'll be brought to the old military hospital of the Anvalide. And there you'll see this magnificent monument in which is buried the Emperor Napoleon. And you come into this marble hall and there's a balustrade around the level on which you enter, and then you can lean on the balustrade and you look over, and down there is what remains of Napoleon. What would we say? A bit of dust? A scrap of bone? That's all that's there. But what about the Napoleon of the Battle of Leipzig? What about the Napoleon who led his armies into Russia, captured Moscow, something Hitler never was able to do? What about the Napoleon who married Josephine? What about the Napoleon who had all his fights with the Pope and who made the Pope come to Paris to crown him emperor of the French? And when the Pope had the crown in his hand was about to put it on the emperor's head, Napoleon grabbed the crown from him and put it on his own head. What about this man? He's gone. He exists only as you reconstruct him and I reconstruct him. So there is inevitably a subjective element in that reconstruction that we call history. We cannot avoid it. Because when we make our reconstruction in the last years of the 20th century, we are bound to reflect our own commitments, our own experience, our own prejudices. And so history as an art is a wonderful and interesting thing, but uh, it is also a, a kind of dangerous thing. So how do we balance that? We balance it with this third consideration. History is a reconstruction from sources. And that consideration is what makes history a science as well as an art. A very imperfect art and a very imperfect science. The physicist would probably probably shrink at the very notion of history as a science, because the physicist can control his experiment, and we have to deal with the uh, volatility and the incompleteness and the fallibility of our experiment. But it is the sources, the witnesses to the events that makes the historian different from the poet and the novelist. The poet creates something first in his mind and then in his words. The novelist creates something first in his mind and then in his story. And he, in each instance, is allowed to do so on the basis of his own inspiration and his own fancy. The historian, on the other hand, is restricted. He is restricted by the necessity to depend upon the sources. Sources mean witnesses. This is the only way in which the Reconstruction can be valid and intellectually acceptable. And so, history of the Church, the history of Catholicism, must also adhere to these principles. If you can forgive that long, unconsciously long, I I should say unintentionally long, diatribe, right straight out of, the, out of the chalkboard, let us move on to something perhaps a bit more to the point. The obvious starting point for our reconstruction is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when we make that intellectual commitment, we immediately find ourselves plunged into historical contexts. Jesus was a Jew. And Jesus lived during the probably the best years of the Roman Empire. Those are the two contexts, one religious and racial, the other political, economic, and social. I think the first thing that occurs to someone reflecting on that is that Jesus chose to come in those contexts. I don't know, it may be irrelevant, but I'm still reminded when I think about this of the second verse of my very favorite Christmas carol, which is uh, the so-called Appalachian carol that comes from the Eastern United States, from West Virginia or somewhere in that neck of the woods. I wonder as I wander out under the sky. I'm sure you, you remember it from from Christmas time. And the second verse goes, If Jesus had wanted for any wee thing, like a star in the sky, or a bird on the wing, or all of God's angels in heaven for to sing, well, he surely could have had it, because he was the king. And so I think it is important for us to stress that Jesus chose these contexts. He could have chosen to uh, manifest himself in India, or Sweden, perhaps not North Dakota. But in any case, he could have chosen to to appear in a democratic society like ours, or a communist one, a fascist one, but he chose to come at this particular time, in this particular place, under these particular racial, religious, social, political circumstances. And so if we're going to understand him, if we're going to reconstruct We have to understand those contexts jesus was a jew his ministry was accomplished within the framework of what christians call the old testament i quote familiar lines to you i have come jesus said to fulfill the law and the prophets and on another occasion not one jot or tittle of the Jewish law will be done away with until it all comes true. When he was tempted in the desert, he quoted scripture to ward off the tempter. The tempter quoted scripture as well. When he was transfigured on the mountain, he was joined by the two greatest heroes of the Jewish faith, the Jewish people, uh, the, the, the most important icons from a patriotic point of view, Moses and Elijah. When he was dying on the cross, his words and actions reflected the songs of the psalmist of five, six hundred years earlier. Eloi, Eloi, sabachthani, he cried out. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? which is directly taken from Psalm 22. And from that same psalm, he didn't use the exact words, but this is what happened. He said in the Latin, sitio, as he was hanging on the cross, I thirst. And the Roman soldier nearby picked up a sponge filled with old wine, spoiled wine, turned wine, as my sainted mother would have called it, vinegar, in other words, and held it up, to his lips. And Psalm 22 says, in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And on the first glorious Easter morning in the garden where the tomb was located, when Mary Magdalene saw him and then recognized him, she called him Rabbi. And all the first Christians were Jews. Jews. That band of 120 gathered together in the the upper room on the day of the first Pentecost. All the writers of the New Testament, with one exception, were Jews. So, our reconstruction of the sacred origins of our religion must understand the elements of the Jewish context, the synagogue culture, if you want to call it that, Otherwise, if we fail to do that, if we fail to see that Jesus chose to reveal himself and his father in this setting, under these circumstances, then we will fall short of grasping who Jesus was and is and what his mission was and is. The second great contextual framework that seems necessary to consider is the Roman Empire, the political, social, economic, and military realities that Jesus lived in. This remarkable entity, which lasted for seven centuries, an unprecedented time, a length of time, unprecedented political success, must be thought of in terms of the Mediterranean world. The Mediterranean is like a great big egg, and round about it are all these lands that we're familiar with today, from Morocco in the west to Turkey in the east, from Spain to Greece, from Syria to southern France. All of these areas are linked by the Mediterranean. The Romans, therefore, were in a position to take advantage of that natural unity that existed in the Mediterranean world. You see, it's often said, mistakenly, that um, the Romans ruled the world. Well, they, they didn't rule the world. There's a lot, they, an awful lot of the world they didn't rule. What they did rule was this naturally unified area. Now, we don't see it as naturally unified because there are all these different nations now and different religious groups Muslims, Christians, Orthodox Christians, Catholic Christians. Morocco is a separate country from egypt and nationalism is a reality today in the way in which it wasn't in the ancient world the point i'm trying to make is that around this egg-shaped body of water there was the same climate the same diet same housing arrangements and italy again if you look at my egg italy was like a bar pushed down into the egg so that it was geographically easier for the for the Italians, for the Romans to control this area than anybody else, say somebody at the other, at one end of the Mediterranean basin or the other. But the Roman Empire lasted therefore for such a long time because it took advantage of this natural physical unity. But it also lasted for a long time because it was uh, basically a tolerant and moderate kind of government. Now, this is very much contrary to the movies that appear on American movie classics uh, regularly. I'm thinking of Ben-Hur, for example, or, or The Robe, and what you get in those productions, which are fun to watch, but have terrible historical deficiencies, because they introduce a kind of mindless tyranny and a kind of racism into the Roman administration, which simply wasn't there. Jesus referred only once that we know of to the Roman Empire, and that was an occasion that you recall, in which some of the less friendly elements in the Jewish society asked him, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? Tribute meaning taxes. And Jesus said, well, let me see the, the coinage you use, or he, as, you, as, they, as the expression goes, the coin of tribute. So they gave him a coin. And he looked at it and he said, uh, Whose visage is that? And they said, Caesar's, the emperor, the Roman emperor. And then came that classic answer that we are all familiar with, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The point he was making was that, unlike our popular assumptions about this matter, The Romans were by and large welcomed in most of the places where they exercised their sovereignty because they brought what politicians are always promising, peace and prosperity. And that coin of tribute rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar's meant, as far as Jesus was concerned, you fellows have been making a good living because you've been able to indulge in trade across the Mediterranean, you've been able to build up your businesses, And the reason you've been able to do that is because Caesar has kept the peace. There were two two things that the Romans in their sovereignty insisted upon in whatever province they found themselves. First was the right to collect taxes. The second was the exclusive control over capital punishment this latter of, of the two, was both a principle of order and a symbol reminding everybody who in the last analysis was the boss. We have, of course, the most dramatic instance of that in Jesus' trial. He was arrested, you remember, on the Holy Thursday night and was brought that night into the Sanhedrin to the local authority the jewish authority and the romans i should have said this before the romans tended to leave as much authority in in local hands as was feasible with their overall control of things so anyway jesus was brought to the sanhedrin he was condemned and then the whole party the next morning moved to the praetorium which was the roman governor's palace and the headquarters of the roman government and demanded jesus execution the dialogue between pontius pilate the governor and the members of the Sanhedrin is interesting in this respect in that he said to them why are you bothering me with this if this man has committed some kind of misdemeanor or felony that you object to then now here's a literal quotation take him and judge him according to your law and their answer was By our law, he made himself the son of God, and that's blasphemy, and by our law, he must die. But they couldn't kill him. It was only the Romans who could do that. And so the drama unfolds. Pilate proposes giving Jesus a lesser penalty, scourging. Sounds like a pretty rough penalty to me, but in any case, less than death. But that doesn't satisfy the local authorities. And so, Pilate, like politicians the world over, fearful of arousing public opinion, concedes that Jesus should be executed. And so he was executed by Roman soldiers because only they could bring formal and legal death to any citizen of the empire. Besides Jesus' experience with the Roman authorities, for the first four centuries of the Christian church, all the Christians lived under the Roman dominion. And in the eastern basin of the Mediterranean, where the imperial structure survived for another nearly thousand years, they were in relation to that authority for that immense length of time. And what you find in the New Testament are constant directives from the writers that Christians owe the emperor obedience and respect. And this was being said even as the Roman persecutions were beginning. Our reconstruction must adhere closely to the sources. That needs hardly to be said. What are our sources? Well, of course, for the life and ministry of Jesus, the four Gospels are our sources. There has been debate for over the centuries about the historicity of the Gospels, the historicity being the technical term really for reliability. Is this really historical reconstruction? And a lot of modern skeptical thinkers have raised doubts about this matter, but In all candor, their doubts are mere cavils because if you bear in mind something, a very important if, if you bear in mind the nature of the Gospels, then their historical value can be discerned. Their historical value is of secondary importance to those who wrote the Gospels, but it is still there. The Gospels are not historical narratives of the kind, let's say, that we're familiar with, the histories of the Civil War or histories of the stock market crash of 1929, nor are the Gospels biographies in the modern sense. They are not designed to take you step by step through the life of Jesus. This is not what they're about. They are rather proclamations of the good news of Jesus Christ. Their primary object is to touch the heart, to bring about conversions. Remember two very important statements made toward the end of St. John's Gospel. There were many other signs that Jesus worked and the disciples saw, but they are not recorded in this book. These are recorded so that believing this, you may have life through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the second remark that John made, There were many other things that Jesus did. If all were written down, the world itself, I suppose, would not hold all the books that would have to be written. Of course, this says two things. It says, first, that the Gospels are not meant to fill out for our intellectual curiosity the day-to-day life of Jesus, whether he ate Wheaties for breakfast, for example. And the second thing it's meant to say is how important tradition has to be in any kind of understanding of the integrity of the christian religion but uh having said that it has to be borne in mind that the gospels were written by witnesses or i should correct that slightly three of the gospels matthew mark and john were written by apostles intimates of jesus or very close disciples in the case of mark luke did not know Jesus personally, but he knew Paul and Peter and most of the other apostles and appears on the scene very quickly, which is the second thing to emphasize. These accounts were written within a generation, 25 years of the death and resurrection of Christ. That is to say, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written that early. John was written somewhat later, perhaps another 25 years. But John the beloved disciple, supplies so many more intimate details that you could argue, I think, very convincingly, that his is the best biographical narrative. The rest of the New Testament, the Acts of the Apostles, which adheres most closely to a historical narrative, and the various epistles, climaxing with that most obscure book, the Apocalypse, the book of Revelations of St. John, give us some idea of the kind of life that the early Christians led and the kind of people they were. But you have to remember about the epistles and other material in the New Testament aside from the Gospels, and this includes the Acts of the Apostles, which, as I said a moment ago, comes closest to being uh, conventional history. You have to bear in mind that they have the same object as the gospels they aren't there to satisfy your intellectual curiosity and mine they're there to proclaim the good news and to bring before the jews and pagans of the time the messianic message which those writing these epistles were convinced was the truth of god But there is history too. We learn quite a lot from the other books of the New Testament about the kind of people the early Christians were. We are instructed about, for example, their dedication to religious exercises, which center in two things. Reading the scriptures and partaking of what they called the breaking of the bread. That is to say, the memorial to the Last Supper, which in turn points to the Eucharist and the sacrifice of the Mass. We know that in the very earliest times, that is to say right after the ascension of Christ, that there were 120 Christians, that's how it all started, all living in Jerusalem, all indeed having to face the difficulties that follow upon a radical movement being unacceptable to the majority of the population. Keeping all things in common, they contributed their property in such a way that they were able to live together harmoniously. That did not last. And we know from the pages of the New Testament that it could not last. As the Christian evangel spread out of Palestine and into the rest of the Mediterranean world, as tens and hundreds and ultimately thousands of people became Christians, No longer could one think of this sort of idyllic situation in which 120 people could live this utopian common life. One thing that should be of great consolation to us Catholics of the last decade of the 20th century, who seem to be so riven by disputes and conflicts and sometimes bitter disagreements on issues of great importance, that the early Christians faced the same kind of problems. The dissidents were everywhere. Perhaps the most famous of them and then the most pernicious of them were a group called the docetists, who said that surely a divine person could not have suffered what Jesus suffered. And therefore it must all be a kind of an image, a kind of pretense, that Jesus looked like a real human being, but he wasn't. There was a kind of shadowy film around him, as it were. Well, of course, if that were the case, the whole Christian position collapses. The most severe and terrible crisis that the Christians in their very first generation had to deal with was how to amalgamate the vast numbers and increasing numbers of Gentile converts to what had begun as a Jewish experience. And there were no precedents. There was no way that anybody could figure this out in a way that could call upon past experience. There had never been anything like this before. And so this Judaizing crisis was the greatest one. It even occasioned a quarrel between Peter, Saint Peter, and Saint Paul, who didn't seem to be able to be on the same wavelength on this issue. And it finally came to a a dramatic and quite wonderful and quite inspiring conclusion when the apostles gathered together in Jerusalem to thrash this matter out, to give, in other words, the lead for all the ecumenical and apostolical councils to follow, including the one in our lifetime, the Second Council of the Vatican. And they thrashed all this out and they decided that only in essentials, and that was even vaguely defined, would Gentile converts need to identify their Jewish roots. And that really went without saying. But the interesting thing is, the way in which the apostles in their council at Jerusalem phrased their decision, they said, It is pleasing to the Holy Spirit and to us that this decision be made. They didn't hesitate to take upon themselves the mantle of authority. And we should not hesitate to grasp our history. We cannot escape it. We should not want to escape it. It leads us, it foretells for us, a participation in the communion of saints to which we all look forward.